Well, good morning. How are you guys? Good. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I had a good one too. No one asked. I was going to tell you anyways. I had a great. It was a good Thanksgiving. Uh, before we go any further today, I need to uh, make a correction to something I said last week. Um, I know this, um, but when I get off my notes, so I, I try to manuscript everything I say when I'm up here. Um, when I get off my notes, I tend to say really dumb things. And so from time to time, I have to stand up here and apologize for something dumb I said and correct uh, what I said. And that's what I'm, I need to do before we dive into the sermon today. Last week, you may remember that we covered a passage in the Gospel of John where this guy, Nathaniel, hears about Jesus. He hears about the Messiah. And this Messiah was from Nazareth. And he hears about this and he makes this statement. He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And you may remember I made a joke about it and I said the equivalent of that today would be if Jesus returned and someone said, where is he? And you said, he's in Gaston. And like, can anything good come from Gaston? Well, unbeknownst to me, uh, we have a family in our church who... <laughs> who owns and runs a vineyard and winery in Gaston. And so this week I had lunch with one of the members of that family and they <laughs> gifted me this bottle of wine from their vineyard. And on the bottle, you probably can't see it, it says something good from Gaston. <laughs> so, and uh, the bottle's empty. So I can tell you it was delicious. It was really uh, really good. Uh, Katie and I enjoyed that this week. Uh, so today's sermon is sponsored by Abundancia, and I'm probably butchering the name, Abundancia Vineyards. You should go buy bottles for all your loved ones this Christmas from them. Um, and I need to officially, on the record, redact the joke from Gas about Gaston and replace it with like Vernonia or something like that. Uh, I'm pretty sure we don't have any vineyard owners from Vernonia in our, in our church family. Um, okay, well, now that, now that that's out of the way, uh, this morning we take a break from the series that never ends, the Gospel of John, and we begin a four-week series through the season of Advent, and it's a series we have called Delighting in the Trinity, based on the title of a book by a guy named Michael Reeves. And on that note, uh, before we dive in, I need to make a couple of preliminary remarks about the series. I would be remiss if I didn't mention right out of the gate that this series has been greatly influenced by two books in particular, two books that you will hear me quote a lot today and in the weeks ahead. These, the two books that I've relied on a lot for this series is this one where we've got the title for the series from by Michael Reeves, Delighting in the Trinity, and then this one by Daryl Johnson, Experiencing the Trinity. And you can purchase both of these books in our bookstore or you can buy them online. And they're, they're both very accessible, very readable, very short books that you can read easily as we navigate this series. So I want to mention that. And then I want to just say this, today I'm going to do an introduction to the series by talking about the Trinity at large. So we'll talk about the Trinity today, and then in the coming weeks we're going to do a deep dive on each person of the Trinity. So here's a roadmap for the rest of the series. I'm actually just preaching this first week, and then we'll show you the calendar for the rest of the series. Next week, one of our pastors, Adam, is going to be talking about the Father. He just had his first child, so we thought it would be appropriate to give him Father. And then on 12.12, Miss Carrie Fay is going to be preaching on the Holy Spirit. And then on 12.19, one of our newest staff members, one of our pastors, Jordan, is going to be preaching on the Son. So we gave him the Son right before 
Christmas, and it's the first time he's preaching here at Table Community, so no pressure at all. You just got to bring it home, wrap up the series for us. And then on 1224, on Christmas Eve, we're going to be doing a Christmas Eve gathering at the Venetian Theater in downtown Hillsborough. We have to do two gatherings to accommodate. Uh, We'll do one at 430 and one at 6 o'clock. If you were with us early on in our church, you may remember one of our first Christmas Eve gatherings was at the Venetian, and then the Venetian sold, and it was vacant for years, and someone else bought the Venetian, remodeled it, and so we are now going to get to do a Christmas Eve gathering there again. So December 24th, 4.30 and 6, put it on your calendar. We will announce that like 100 times between now and then. Okay, let me pray, and then we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for an opportunity to gather with other followers of your son, Jesus, as we sing and study your word and take communion. God, we partake in these sacred acts as believers have been doing for thousands of years, not out of religious duty or begrudging obedience, but God, we do these things because we believe the gospel and our lives have been changed as a result. God, as we look at your scriptures this morning, we ask for your Holy Spirit to open our minds and our hearts to your voice. May we continue to be changed by the truth in this book, and may the gospel of Jesus, the life-changing, soul-restoring good news of Christ be exalted in every passage. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, my guess is most of you know or have at least met my wife, Katie. But in case you're new to our church or you typically come to this gathering, she comes to the first gathering. Maybe you haven't met her before. So if you're new, let me show you a picture of my wife. This is my wife, Katie, and our oldest daughter, Naya, from a couple of years ago. Now, she, she laughs at me when I say this, and uh, she was in the first gathering, um, so she was probably mad at me for saying it in front of everyone. But when I met her for the first time, I could take you back to the spot. When I met her for the first time, she literally like, stopped me in my tracks. Like, her beauty was stunning to me. I just, this sounds dumb, I grew up in a small town in the South. I didn't know that people that beautiful existed in real life. Like, I thought, like, TV, movie, something like that, but in real life, I was just shocked by it. Now, it, for me, it was love at first sight. For her, not so much, but you probably could have pieced that together already. It was not, uh, not love at first sight on her end. But once I got over the initial shock of her external beauty and I got to know her, I fell in love with her even more. Recently, we celebrated 10 years of marriage. And let's say on our anniversary, we went out to dinner and we came home and I said, Katie, I just want to tell you a few things. And I I got down on my knees in front of her and I held her hands in my hands and I said, Katie, I just want to tell you all the reasons why I love you. And I just start rattling them off. And I say, Katie, I love your jet black hair and I love your baby blue eyes and I love your dark complexion and the way you tan in the summer But it's not just your physical attributes, Katie. It's all the other stuff about you that I love. I love that you enjoy being on stage and and speaking in public. I love the way you are comfortable living in a messy home and the house is just always cluttered and you're okay with that. And I love the way you love clowns and you just think they're so funny when you see clowns around. Now, all of that could be sweet if it were true. But it's not true, not even kind of true. You saw the picture. My wife does not have jet black hair, and she does not have blue eyes. And that girl was raised in Oregon, and she runs away from the sunshine any chance she can. And you will rarely, if ever, see my wife on stage. And if she is on stage because I make her for some reason, she's always in the back, and she will never be talking into a microphone. And our house, if you've ever been to our house, you know this, it's never cluttered. It kind of always looks like we're staging it to sell like we're running an Airbnb out of our own home. 
And my wife, she can't stand clowns. So like Halloween is like a terrifying holiday for her. One time, it's not even just clowns, it's also mascots of any kind. So like sporting events are terrifying. One time we were at Chick-fil-A and the cow mascot came out and just ruined her, her meal. So if I said any of these things to my wife, it wouldn't end well for me. I can tell her that I love her all that I want, but the truth is if I say these things, I simply reveal to her that I don't know her at all. I love some image, a version of her that only exists in my mind. And that's dangerous. And that is why I wanted to do an entire series on the Trinity. Because my fear is that most of us really love God. We want to love God, but most of us don't fully know him. We know parts of him. We know aspects of him. We know certain characteristics of him. But we don't know him at his core because God at his core is triune. It's one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. It is central to this thing we call Christianity. Michael Reeves says it this way. He says, The Trinity is the governing center of all Christian belief, the truth that shapes and beautifies all others. Neither a problem nor a technicality. The triune being of God is the vital oxygen of the Christian life and joy. Vital oxygen. Similarly, Professor Daryl Johnson says it this way, God always has and always will be the Trinitarian God, always has been and always will be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This affirmation lies at the heart of the Christian faith and therefore at the heart of the Christian gospel. And I would go as far as to say this, until or unless we see God for who he is as Trinity, we will never be able to love him fully and we will never be able to experience his love fully. We will never be able to love him fully if we don't know him and we will never be able to experience that love fully if we don't understand it. So here's the plan for the day. I wanna talk about the Trinity. It's gonna be a big overview sermon because again, in the coming weeks, we're gonna talk about each person of the Trinity. So today, I wanna point out some tensions in doing a series about the Trinity. Because if, if we're going to tackle a topic like this, there are some tensions that come with it. So I want to talk about the tensions. And then I want to do a big sweeping overview of the Trinity as we see it in the Bible. And we're going to look at a ton of passages together. And then I want to talk about some powerful implications of the Trinity. And then I want to close with one application. So tensions, Bible, implications, and an application. Okay. There are several tensions we need to at least acknowledge when we approach this topic. Tension number one is this, if you take notes. This is confusing. It's confusing. Let's just state it right up front. This is a very confusing topic. If it were easy, the church wouldn't have been discussing it for the last several thousand years. If it were easy, we wouldn't have to do a four-week series on it. But it's not easy. Daryl Johnson says this, For many people, the doctrine of the Trinity is nothing but a hopeless puzzle, the pieces of which simply do not fit. Three is not one, and one is not three, no matter how you figure it. Even among some churchgoers, the doctrine is sometimes considered an intellectual embarrassment, a part of the Christian faith that should be relegated to a bygone era. Certainly, the doctrine of the Trinity isn't simple. So it's, it's not a simple doctrine, but it is essential for us to study it because it is essential to our faith. Second tension we have to navigate is this. Every analogy breaks down. Typically, when there is a really difficult concept to explain, people try to simplify the concept with some sort of analogy, and the Trinity is no exception. If you grew up in the church or have been around the church for any amount of time, you have probably heard a number of these 
analogies. So maybe you've heard like the Trinity is like an egg. So you have the egg, but the egg has three parts. It has the shell, the white, and the yolk. Or God is like water. It's water, but there are three forms to the water. You can have liquid, solid, or gas. The problem is every analogy eventually breaks down, and without even trying really hard, you can become a heretic pretty quickly. When you try to explain the Trinity, if you're not careful, you pretty quickly veer into heresy. Now, Rather than explain this to you, I want to show you one of my all-time favorite YouTube videos that explains this better than I could ever explain it. The video I'm going to show you, it's a cartoon, and it's a video of St. Patrick as he attempts to explain the Trinity to the pagans of Ireland when he is evangelizing the pagans there. So watch this video. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple, okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Uh, okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light, and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him, exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like... Uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm gonna stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously. I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an apple. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? Yeah, quit beating around the bush. 
so good. I've seen it probably 20 times this week, and it just gets better. The Trinity is confusing. It is a very confusing topic, and every attempt to explain it with an analogy eventually breaks down and leads us into heretical thought. That's a tension we have to navigate this series. Third tension is this. The word Trinity does not occur in the Bible. Now, you might be thinking, wait, we are devoting an entire series, Advent, which is like a pretty big series, to discuss a word that doesn't even appear in the Bible, sort of. So although the word is not found in the Bible, the idea is all over the Bible. Think about it like this. If I were to ask you to go find a recent scholarly article about why the earth is round, you would probably have a difficult time doing so because people aren't devoting their time to proving that the earth is round anymore. People are devoting their time to proving that the earth is flat, but not round. It's just assumed in the scholarly community. One of the most amazing things, when you read the Bible, when you read the Bible, you see that this idea of Trinity, it's just assumed by the biblical authors. As one pastor I listened to this week said it, the Trinity is always in the background, but never in the foreground. It's always in the background of the pages of Scripture, but never in the foreground. Think about the baptism of Jesus, which Carrie Faye taught about a few weeks ago. It's not a text about the Trinity, but there in the text about the baptism of Jesus, you see the Father, and you see the Son, and you see the Holy Spirit always in the background on Scripture's pages, but never in the foreground. So with that in mind, I want to give you a big picture, broad overview of the Trinity, And I want to give you uh, some propositional truths that we can hang our hat on, that we can cling to, some propositional truths, and then support those truths with the scriptures. So unlike a typical Sunday where I invite you to turn to a passage and we stay in one passage the whole time, I'm going to ask you to just not try to keep up because we're going to move through these really quickly and all of these verses will be on the screen. We're going to cover a ton of passages this morning. Here's the first propositional truth we see in the Bible. There is one God. The first thing we see when we approach the Bible is that there is one single God. We do not worship several different gods. We worship one God, and we see it all over the Bible. Let me show you a few passages. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, first verse in the Bible says this. In the beginning, God, singular, created the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning, not the beginning of all time, the beginning of time as we know it, the beginning of creation, there was one God, and that one God created the heavens and the earth. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is from one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament for the Jewish people. It was called the Shema. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So here in Deuteronomy, the Lord is one. One God. Isaiah chapter 45. God says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. God himself makes it clear, I am God, there is no other. I am the one God you should worship. Now just so you don't think this is only an Old Testament thing, let me show you one from the New Testament. James chapter 2, James 2, 19 says this, you believe that God is one, you do well, good job. Even the demons believe and shudder. So here's the good news. You believe God is one? You're right. The bad news is even the demons believe that. Now, there's only four verses. I could literally take us to dozens, if not hundreds, that point out that we worship one God. But there's a second part to this idea. Second truth, God is three persons. So there's one God 
And in that one God, there are three persons. Again, let me show you from the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We read Genesis 1, 1. This is a few verses later. It says this. Then God, singular, said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. But didn't we just read in Genesis 1, 1 that in the beginning, the one God, like singular God created? But here in 126, he says, let us. There's a plurality involved at this point. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 says this, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. Okay, so there's one God. That's how many? One God. And he names this God. The Father, from whom all things are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord. So again, one God, but then he names a different name. Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So there's one God, his name's Father. There's also one God, his name's Jesus Christ. Let me show you another, Matthew chapter 28, words of Jesus himself. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is fascinating because in the Greek, name is singular. So there's one name, baptize them in the name of, and what's the name? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so, so far we have one God who exists as three persons. One God who exists as three persons. Third propositional truth. Each person of the Trinity is and has always been fully God. You see, there's this belief that has risen up throughout church history that there is one God who has manifested himself in different ways. So perhaps God the Father in the Old Testament, God Jesus in the New Testament, and God the Spirit today. But as we saw in the video I showed you, that is heresy. And very quickly, we get into heretical thought, and people have been kicked out of the church over the last couple of thousand years for believing such a thing. So let me show you some passages in the Bible that prove or show us that God is and has always been triune. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus, according to John, Jesus was there in the beginning with God. But if you flip over to the beginning of the story, in Genesis, we see God the Father, and we see God the Holy Spirit. So if you put those together, you have all three members of the Trinity present at creation. Let me show you another. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul, closing out his letter to the church at Corinth, says this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, that is the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So he doesn't say the love of the Father from the Old Testament, the love of Jesus who's gone, and now we get the Holy Spirit. He says, no, all of them are present right now. Let me show you another, Matthew chapter 3. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is perhaps one of the most clear examples we have. You have all three persons of the Trinity present. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And let me show you one more that shows the eternal nature of this. John chapter 17. John chapter 17, this is Jesus praying here. And he's praying to his father, to your father. And he says, Father, I desire 
that they also, and there he's talking about you, you are the they in the passage, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me, listen to this, you loved me before the foundation of the world. So how long have God the Father and God the Son been loving one another? Before the foundation, before Genesis 1-1, before the foundation of the world, in eternity past, God, and, God the Father and God the Son have been in relationship with one another. So if I were to summarize everything that the Bible teaches about God in one sentence, here's what I would say. There is and has always been one God who has existed forever in perfect community and love as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how I would summarize this teaching that we're going to spend four weeks in. There is and has always been one God who has existed forever in perfect community and love as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now let me say one last thing before we get to the implications, because this I think is so interesting. The Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, and the Protestant Church, and all the denominations that come underneath that umbrella, they disagree about a ton of things. If you were to put a Catholic priest, an Orthodox priest, a Methodist pastor, and a Baptist preacher all in the same room, which sounds like a joke, and you were to ask them, what do you agree on? What do you agree on? It would be a really short list because they do not agree about the sacraments. They don't agree about church strategy or philosophy. They don't agree about evangelism and how that should happen. They don't agree about the severity of God's sovereignty, but they do agree about this. You get the global church, people from every different denomination in one room, and you ask them, what do you agree on? Here's what they would say. There is and has always been one God who's existed forever in perfect community and love as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible teaches. Question we have to ask is, so what? Like, who cares? What do we, what do, we do with this rather abstract concept that we see in the Bible? Let me talk through some implications. If you're a note taker, there will be four implications. First implication is this. Because God is Trinity, it means that love is at the center of the universe. Love is at the center of the universe. Now, this might sound like some sort of hippie commune kind of implication, but it is deeply important. Okay? Church Father St. Augustine talks about this a lot, and he says that if God were a singularity as opposed to Trinity, follow this, then God's essence could not have been love. Love could have come in later with creation, but it could not have been intrinsic to his being because, as Augustine notes, love is what someone does for another. Love is what someone feels for another. So if God were singular only, he could not be intrinsically loving. But Augustine says, if it's true that God is eternally triune, then it means that God was love before the universe came into existence. This led Augustine to give this famous line. He said, God is at once lover, beloved, and love itself. Lover, beloved, and love itself. Love is intrinsic to the universe because it is intrinsic to our God. And this, to be clear, sets us apart from every other religious worldview. Ancient polytheism suggests that before the creation of the world, the gods were at war with one another. So in that scenario, violence is at the heart of the universe. Eastern religions picture God not as a person, but as an energy or as a force. 
So in that scenario, this energy or this force is at the center of the universe. Monotheistic religions like Islam have one isolated, powerful God at the beginning. So maybe power or autonomy is at the heart of the universe. But for the Christian, for you and for me, if you are a follower of Jesus, we worship a triune God. And that means that love is at the very center of the universe. Again, Michael Reeves says this, this God will, not, will simply not fit into the mold of any other. A God who is in himself love, who before all things could never be anything but love, having such a God happily changes everything. It changes everything, and it does. Understanding this literally changes everything because this truth, that love is at the center of the universe, this truth is gospel truth. It is good news truth. Again, Daryl Johnson says, here's the gospel. Listen to this quote. The God who is love draws near to me, a sinful mere mortal, to draw me near to himself in order to draw me within the circle of lover, beloved, and love itself. I become a co-lover with God. It is the very reason for my existence and for yours and for every other person who lives or has ever lived on this planet. We are co-lovers, he says, with the Trinity. Now, let me tell you what's happening in the room right now. Right now, there are a few of you who are totally with me. And I can tell because you're, you're nodding along, you're, you're with me. And, and the, the idea of being a co-lover with this triune God, it just warms your soul. You're like, I am here for it. Your emotions are intact. You're like, yes, let's do this, this love thing. And then there are a lot of you in the room who are thinking, you may not say it out loud, but you're thinking, what kind of Raj Nishi cult did I walk into right now? This sounds spooky and weird and confusing. If that's you, and it was me when I first started to understand this, okay? If that's you, hang in there. I want to give you something a little bit more tangible as we move forward. Second implication is this. Because God is Trinity, it means that we are created for relationship. We are created. You and I were made in the image of this triune God. God, in relationship with himself, together said, let us make man in our image. So we are, brother or sister, we are at our core relational beings because God is a relational God. And guess what we were created to experience? What they have experienced for eternity. We were created to experience relationship with God and relationship with one another. One of my professors from seminary, Dr. Bruce Ware, says it like this. The very fact that God though singular in nature, is plural and societal in person, indicates that we should not view ourselves as isolated individuals who happen to exist in close proximity to others, but as interconnected, interdependent, relational persons in community. Now think about this. In the creation story, if you go back and read Genesis 1 and 2, you see this Hebrew poem. And when you read it in the Hebrew, it's a very rhythmic poem. And it goes like this. God creates something, he looks at it, and he calls it good. So God creates the light, he looks at it, he calls it good. He creates the seas, the land, the birds, the trees. He looks at these things and he says, it's good. But then he makes man. And it's the first time, Genesis 2, first time God looks at something in his creation and he says, it's not good. And do you remember what was not good about this man he created? It was not good that he was alone that he was alone. Mankind was created. You and I were created for relationship. So God creates Eve, one flesh, two people, this one flesh union of distinct persons. And it gives us a picture in a very small way of this 
Trinity. Now, I think it's so fascinating that when sin enters the world, so you skip over a chapter, chapter three, sin comes crashing into the world, okay? So now humanity is ruined, essentially, and sin perverts everything. The first thing Adam and Eve do, okay, is not snort cocaine. They don't do that. They don't rob a bank. They don't murder someone. The first thing that sin distorts is what? The relationship. Sin distorts the relationship they have with God, so they start hiding in shame, and sin distorts their relationship, and they start blaming each other, and that has not stopped. It distorted relationship. At our very core, we are relational beings. God's image imprinted on our DNA. Once again, Johnson says this, at the center of the universe is a relationship. That is the most fundamental truth I know. It is out of that relationship that you and I were created and redeemed, and it is for that relationship that you and I were created and redeemed. This is why we say all the time, if you hang out with our staff long enough, you'll hear us say something like, we want to be a highly relational church. We want to be a highly relational church. Recently, I was having a conversation with someone who is helping us search for our next worship director, and she doesn't know our church very well, and so she was trying to get to know us, and she said, what is your church like? I said, if I had to summarize it and just say one thing, I would say we are a highly relational church. Now, we do this, we exist as a highly relational church, not because we think it's a good strategy, not because we think it's a cool thing to do, not because our our staff team is a bunch of extroverts. I am an introvert to the core. The reason we are a relational church is because we are created in the image of a relational God, and so being relational beings is who we are. Okay, third implication. Third Because God is Trinity, it means we are hardwired for serving others. Intrinsic to the Trinity is this ever-serving, ever-glorifying, ever-submitting relationship to each other. In Matthew chapter 3, the passage about the baptism of Jesus, which we read earlier, you see this playing out. The Son submitting to the will of the Father, the Father delighting in His Son, the Spirit hovering and ministering to Jesus later. In John chapter 17, you have this image of the Son glorifying the Father and the Father glorifying the Son, serving one another in relationship. That means that there is an other orientation to the very nature of God. Let me say that again. In the very nature of God, there is an outward-focused other orientation to God. And this is really important for us to grasp because the world will tell us that the way to live the good life, the way to be happy is to always and only focus on yourself, to do what you want to do with who you want to do it and to spend your money on things for yourself and your family that will not last into eternity. But if God is Trinity, and he is, and for eternity past, he has always been others focused, caring for the other persons of the Godhead, then get this, this is important, the more self-focused you get in life, the more unlike God you become. The more focused on yourself you get, the more unlike God you become. And the inverse is also true. You are most yourself. You are most created in the image of God, most like God when you are not focused on yourself at all. Michael Reeves says it better than I can. He says, this sinful turn from being lovers of God to being lovers of self, of course, makes us ever more devilishly ugly, ever more self-absorbed and vicious. Naturally, I am bent in on myself and I take hellish delight in my own supposed independence. But if I am to look anything like the outgoing, outward-looking Father, Son, and Spirit, the Spirit must take my eyes off myself. May we begin to live self 
less lives. May we stop being so self-focused and begin serving the people all around us every day. Fourth implication. Because God is Trinity, we are participants in his mission. We are invited into this relationship. We are invited into Trinity, not to be passive consumers or passive observers of God's goodness and love, but also to join him as he reaches the world with his goodness and love. Richard Sibbs, the great Puritan preacher, talks a lot about God's love and God's goodness, and he did so so often and with such tenderness that he became known in that part of the world as the honey-mouthed preacher because his words were so sweet to hear. One of his more famous refrains was about how God created the world, not because he was lonely or bored, but God created the world because he was so full of goodness and love that it overflowed, resulting in creation, resulting in you. He calls it the spreading goodness of God. Isn't that beautiful? The spreading goodness of God. He says it didn't end at creation. It extends to this day. God ever trying to reach humanity and inviting us into this loving relationship. And brothers and sisters, this is what we are caught up in. This is why we exist as a church. If someone were to ask me, Justin, what is the mission of TCC? Why does Table Community Church exist? Here's what I would say if I had to summarize it. We exist to help every person experience, embrace, and participate in the Trinitarian love of God. We exist to help every person experience, embrace, and participate in the Trinitarian love of God. That is why we exist. That is why, brothers and sisters, that is why we give of our time and of our money. That is why we participate in the works of justice and mercy. That is why we spend our money on things that actually matter in life. That is why some of you adopt and foster kids. That is why we live in community with one another. That is why we work hard to have healthy marriages. That is why we invest in our children and in our youth. That is why we work to be the best employees possible at Nike and Intel and in insomnia. We do all of that as a church so that we can help every person we encounter experience this love. That's why we exist as a church. Now, let me give you the application, one application this week, and then we will flesh this out in the weeks to come. This Advent season, here's your application. Delight in this triune God. Delight in this triune God. No matter what your struggles are, no matter the stress, the anxiety, the grief, that is wrapped up in this holiday season for you, I pray that it is full of moments of worship and reflection and enjoyment of God. I read a line by the Catholic Archbishop and writer Joseph Kurtz this week, and he says this, Advent is a time of devout and expectant delight. I love that, expectant delight. As we enter this season called Advent, a season of waiting, where we reflect on the first arrival of Jesus and we look forward to his second arrival, may it be a time of expectant delight. But please hear me. I'm not talking about a delight in the season, like, oh, I just love the Christmas season and the lights and the music and the cookies or whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. I want you to delight in God. May it be the kind of delight that the psalmist is getting at in Psalm 37.4 when he says, delight yourself in the Lord. That word delight in the Hebrew is a really fun word because it carries more exuberance than our English word does. Let me show you this in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word is pronounced anag, and it means to take exquisite delight. One scholar I read this week said it literally could read, to make sport of enjoying God. I love that, to make sport of enjoying God. So here's what I'm trying to say. This Advent season, here's your application, make sport of enjoying and savoring and delighting in this triune God. We'll talk about that each week as we navigate this series. But as we wrap up and prepare our hearts for the tables of communion, I want to close by telling you a story 
about a man who has spent more time thinking and writing on the Trinity than probably any person in human history. It's a man that I referenced earlier in the sermon. His name was St. Augustine, and he was the Bishop of Hippo in northern Africa. The year was 415 A.D., St. Augustine was walking alone on the beach on a bright sunny day. He was frustrated and he needed a break from all the writing he had been doing. You see, at the time, he had been writing a book about the Trinity, a book that would take him eventually 30 years to complete. The subject matter had left him bleary-eyed, much like many of you today, in need of fresh air and went out for a walk. As he was walking, He looked down on the beach and he noticed a small freckle-faced little boy running into the frothy waters and scooping up water in a seashell and then running back to the beach to a hole that he had apparently dug and he dumped the water in the hole. And over and over again, he did this. This little boy to the ocean, scoop up some water, back on the beach, dump the water in this hole. Augustine stood there watching for a while and then he shouted, my son, what are you doing over there? The boy stopped, looked up at Augustine. He held up his pink shell that he was using to transfer the water. And he said, I'm trying to fit that big ocean into that tiny hole. Augustine smiled, charmed by the child's innocence and his hope-filled eyes. He then walked over to the boy and knelt beside the tiny hole and watched him dump a few drops of water into the hole. And Augustine said, my child, he takes the boy and he turns the boy to the ocean so the boy can see the vast expanse of the sea. And he held his arms wide and he said, you could never fit this great, magnificent ocean into that tiny hole. As the story goes, the the little boy didn't flinch, but he turned around to Augustine and he looked at him and he said, and you will never be able to fit the Trinity into that tiny brain of yours. Now, we don't know if the story is true or not. It's been told dozens of times over the last several hundred years. We don't know if this boy was an actual boy who knew Augustine and knew what he was writing about. We don't know if it was just some angel or some dream that Augustine had. The reason I tell you the story is this. We may never understand God fully all at once. Understanding the Trinity is a lifelong endeavor, but my hope for you in this Advent season as we explore this triune God is that bit by bit and drop by drop, we would begin understanding him more and more And as we do, that we would delight in him, that we would delight in God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. God, when we look at something like Trinity, when we study you for who you are at your core, it is a precious reminder that we will never be able to fully understand it, and yet we must try if we are going to love you fully and fully experience your love, we have to try. God, I pray that you would give us minds to understand in the coming weeks. That you would open our minds and our hearts. God, that we would experience you in a new way this Advent season. God, as we prepare our hearts to take communion, I pray that we would experience your grace at the tables, your body broken, your blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins because you love us. Spirit, move in this place and in the hearts of your people. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.